If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. Slightly late this week, I'm Andrew Harrison. On this week's show, it's Crunch Week with the Hartlepool by-election, Scottish and Welsh national elections and local elections in England. The polls are tightening, at least between Labour and the Conservatives, but will it be enough? And is the sleeves message finally cutting through? Plus, the COVID nightmare in India worsens. A country that manufactures vaccines has lost control of its own pandemic. Should countries like Britain be re-exporting medicines to India or foregoing our own orders for vaccines from India? And also, this week's wild idea. Rather than trying to fix inequality with lifelong tinkering and interventions via the benefit system, can we just give everybody a strong start in life by handing them £10,000 on their 18th birthday? All that and more on today's Bunker. Welcome to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. It's slightly delayed due to technical difficulties. We we apologise about that. Let's meet today's team for political intrigue and intellect. First up, it's man of many talents, Alex Andreo. Hello, Alex. Hello, Andrew. We are staggering out of various lockdowns and now coping with the issues of reopening our services. And it's emerged mm. that a third of local authority nurseries are cutting staff and services because of their, because their funding is uncertain. What's going on here and, and why is it not getting the attention it deserves? So a charity called uh, Early Education and several unions did a survey of nurseries and found that state-maintained ones, which are about a third of all nurseries, are really, really struggling. And that's because they have been excluded from schemes, from relief schemes, which for which they would be eligible if they were privately for-profit-run entities. This matters because, obviously, state-maintained nurseries are overrepresented in the most deprived areas. If uh, capacity is not maintained, it's the poorest parents that won't be able to return to work, becoming even less independent. So the Department of Education is saying, oh, we've given an extra 60 million to local authorities. That doesn't even touch the sides. The Institute of Fiscal Studies found at the end of last year that there was a a 1.1 billion shortfall for councils because of lower tax receipts. And that was before the latest lockdown. It's now over 2 billion. So, you know, pennies won't cut it. These nurseries were a hub during the the uh, lockdowns because private nurseries, of course, just closed the doors. It was state-maintained nurseries that spent extra money to put in extra measures so they could have essential workers' kids, so that essential workers could go to work and keep everything running. 
And this is a poor way to repay them. So we're seeing the first story of the problems of unlocking after the problems yeah. of, of locking down. That's right. Meanwhile, in other news, at completely the other end of the spectrum of wealth and prosperity, <laughs> Rupert Murdoch has uh, announced his, or rather, it has been announced that Rupert Murdoch is cancelling his plans for a right of centre TV news channel. So we're not going to get Lawrence Fox News. They're just going to do streaming content and not rolling news. Is this actually quite good? news for for the likes of us or does it just open the way for andrew neil's gb news aka brillo vision hmm. do you want the good news first or the bad news go on good news first. <laughs> um, okay so the optimistic spin is that their market research has showed that there wasn't enough money to make a fox news style channel commercially viable which means there's not enough viewers for it the pessimistic take is that anyone still seeking to launch such a channel therefore is not looking at it as a commercially viable enterprise, but as a, a thing that will buy them political influence. Uh, and, and that makes it slightly more dangerous, you know, because someone is seriously pumping money into it, not because they expect to make money out of it, but because they looked at the world and they thought, mm, people don't seem angry enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the show of podcasts. Get off our lawn, television. That's what we're here for. Also joining us, we have the editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog, Roz Taylor. Hello, Roz. Hello. We're going to be burying people in talk about uh, Hartlepool and national uh, elections later, but you have theories about London. Is that right? London in particular. Yeah, I'm a bit upset about London because, to be honest, London ought to be an exciting mayoral race. And it isn't an exciting mayoral race because Sadiq Khan will walk away with it, despite the fact that extraordinarily, Sean Bailey is now surging a little bit in the polls. I mean, I, I find this, he is he is a very, very weak candidate. I was a bit mystified as to why the Conservatives put him forward in the first place. I suppose they didn't want to throw away a good candidate when they thought that he didn't have a chance. But I mean, this is the guy who actually claimed that it was Sadiq Khan's fault that TfL's uh, income had plummeted during the pandemic. I mean, that is the standard of his public debate. But the whole range, you know, many of the abject, uh, candidates absolutely abject um, they are promising things that are simply not in the competence of the mayor. Rejoining the EU, ending lockdown, fostering a culture, I, don't, I, I, I kid you not, where speciesism is rejected. The one uh, silly candidate who has really cut through it away has been uh, Count Binface, of course, Lord mm. Buckethead, as was, because most <laughs> of his policies are actually entirely possible to implement. And I think he will do, he will, as a result, I think he will do fairly well among people who just think, oh, fuck it, Carl's going to win. I'll just put him on the, uh, on the ballot. So you're also predicting quite a good showing for the Greens. Are we going to see a bin face green coalition? Recycling bins. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's very pooter. It's very diary of a nobody, the whole recycling bins thing. It's just kind of, yeah, it, it, it sort of shrieks of the domestic sphere to which we've all been thrust back in the last year. No, I mean, it, it, I think Sean Berry um, and the Green candidates in particular will do quite well because I think people will think, well, because... Uh, Sadiq Khan is a shoe in I'm going to vote Green 1 and Khan 2 or Khan 1 and, and, and Berry 2. And I think that there will be a lot of people, particularly the kind of people who in London who get exercised about things like low traffic neighbourhoods and cycling and so on, of whom there is a big constituency in the capital. And they will they will want to go for Green. That's enough, London. Completing the panel, it's comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah, who actually, unfortunately, is in London. How, how are you, Ahir? <laughs> Hello. I, I can't apologise enough for that. Right. Now, I'm given to understand that you're finding the return to normality a bit harder work than you were expecting. 
Well, I don't even know if it's necessarily harder work than I was expecting. It's sort of the the level of hard work that I was expecting. Um, just in in the sense that I think uh, pretty common, and I think people have done studies about this, about um, how many people have some sense of general anxiety about properly socializing again and everything. And uh, I found that certainly on Monday, I had a lovely afternoon sat with a few friends in a pub garden. And then on the way back, I was just quite, quite overwhelmed by the whole thing. But I guess you've got to, you you got to dip into these things and get used to it again. That's the only way. Well, you're sitting there with your phone saying, Siri, how do you buy around? Siri, Siri, should I have crisps? Things like that. <laughs> Young zap and yes. Uh, uh, you're back in action, in live action, live and direct on June the 6th doing your Dots show. What's your Dots show? I am, yes. Uh, so this was the show that I was touring in sort of 2019-20, which was all supposed to end with a very grand filming of it for HBO Max on the 31st of March 2020. It's a stand-up show about uncertainty and living in a very <laughs> uncertain world. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, at least the thesis got proved correct. Um, but it is now once again happening at the Vaudeville Theatre in London on June 6th. Tickets available at ahushar.com. And it's now called Dots forever. Colon I Told You So. <laughs> <laughs> Sleezers in the air everywhere you look around. Sleezers in the air every sight and every sound. After a fortnight dominated by talk of lobbying, cronyism, Boris Johnson's flat renovation, Carrie Simmons' golden wallpaper, and lucrative government contracts for people who may or may not have helped the process along, Keir Starmer opened what looks like it's going to be a troublesome election week with a promise to clean up politics. It's looking highly unlikely that Labour can retain Hartlepool. A Servation poll on Monday put the Conservatives on 50% and Labour on 33%. But the national polls have been tightening somewhat. Conservative leads down from 11% to between 2 and 5 Alex, well, first off, give us what, what, what's your big take? Do you think the, the sleeves message is cutting through? Because it, it sounds like Labour are becoming increasingly pessimistic that this is going to be a decent showing at all. I've only seen three or four polls showing movement that, that is encouraging for Labour, one or two that don't. The problem is that every poll I have seen at local level is pointing in the opposite direction. So if you look at polls for... Tees Valley Mayor, West Midlands Mayor, Hartlepool, all seem to suggest that Labour will get an absolute battering. I don't know if that means that the sleaze message is not cutting through, because, as you may recall, I never thought that the sleaze message was a short fuse uh, issue. I think it's a long fuse issue. On the sleaze, you were pointing out that focusing on Johnson's perks and Carrie's wallpaper and so forth are not as important as what's not being talked about, which is what he was actually giving in return for this stuff, the stuff that he was selling. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to trivialise a story by focusing on cushions or wallpaper, but the central issue is not what the money was buying, but what the donor was buying. The two are not the same thing. So the trivial nature of the items should actually make it more worrying that the prime minister of the country is so fucking broke, <laughs> he would he would put himself in such a compromising pos- position for a pair of fucking curtains that he would degrade his office for 60 grand, that he will advertise himself as for sale for such trivial consideration, makes it worse, not better. So 
and what I mean by the fact that this is a long fuse issue is that if it begins, if the adjective crooked begins to be attributed to Johnson, it's a really hard thing to shake. It is something that will stick to him for the next four years because everything he does will be interpreted through that prism. It is difficult living with a crooked Johnson. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've just had the name of the, the, this week's uh, episode. Thank you for that idea. Take the rest of the podcast off. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Roz, speaking of Crooked Johnsons, uh, over the weekend, the Sunday Times yeah. got a story that uh, he told the Prime Minister, told friends that he needs to earn about, about £300,000 a year or twice his salary to, quote, keep his head above water and that it's received wisdom inside number 10 that, he's, that Johnson's permanently broke. Again, this seems to be, you know, this is the sort of stuff that outrages the likes of us, but people who like Boris Johnson like him because of things like this. Look what he's getting away with. Well, yeah, I mean, as Alex says, up to a point, he, he yes, this is this is what happens when you need to send your children to Eton. Basically, you uh, end up having requirements for income which are, which are far higher than the rest of us, and then you acquire a, a fiance who also has uh, you know further further demands. <laughs> it's all it, it's all so sadly, but you know, it all feels like it's playing out in a way that was entirely predictable and rather sad in a way that this man is now in in hock to um his his girlfriend's demands for wallpaper it right it look, makes him look rather pathetic and i think in the end that may end up damaging him more than he imagines johnson is someone who considers himself fairly virile and who um whose seductive powers are very important to him by all accounts i was talking to someone a, a couple of weeks ago who said you know i know someone who who um who, who loathed Johnson, you know, he, she worked in the NHS and like many of the people working in the NHS, she said, you know, can't stand him, can't stand what he's done. And then he came along and visited her hospital and he was like, he's so, yeah, I couldn't, he was so charming, he was so nice, I couldn't help but smile. It is an extraordinary capacity that he has to win people over. But, you know, as soon as he starts looking like something, a rather caricature of a late middle-aged man who is in hock to to his girlfriend's demands, I think that will damage him among the public. If Labour has a bad Thursday, do you think that, what, what, what do you think this is going to mean for, for, for Boris Johnson? I mean, you, you might immediately think, well, it'll strengthen him. Does he need any more strengthening? He does seem infuriatingly to be in this unassailable position where the only person who can damage him is himself. I think back to 2019, and that was when the Hansard Society found that 54% of Britons thought we needed a strong leader who was prepared to break the rules. Mm. And what we got was a weak leader who was prepared to break the rules, <laughs> but whose power has been greatly boosted and consolidated by the pandemic in ways that I don't think, frankly, are fully acknowledged by the media themselves and by people in general it is we've talked a lot in society about how things like zoom have changed the way we work we haven't really talked about the massive difference this is what this has made to how we do politics to how we talk to each other about politics and it's become almost a second or third order problem it hasn't been the urgent thing. It's all been, oh, you know, we need to get back to the pub. It hasn't been, how can we actually rebuild civic society? How can we get people talking to each other again in large groups? 
But we won't always be in this abject state of dependence upon Johnson's whims. We won't always be hanging on his every word, you know, grateful for the right mm-hmm. to go to the cinema again, desperate for the for the ability to go on a two-day break to Paris. You know, politics will get back to normal and the sleaze will accumulate. It's just that it is not normal now. To, to strike a, a, a small note of optimism, when people like Johnson fall, they usually fall because they overreach. They basically do something that goes beyond what people are willing to accept. And so perhaps his confidence being built further is actually the way to his demise. Yeah, I think there's an element of hubris that will go on. But I am actually optimistic as well, because I think things are going to change. I think we're in an extraordinary period, and this is going to change Mm. in a few months. And things are going to look very, very different for Labour and for Starmer by the autumn. God, I wish I'd hurry up. Oh, here. (laughs) Uh, we're talking about sleeves now. Uh, it was all over the papers last week, and now it's all miraculously disappeared, as if you know we've done that. As if the, you know, I, don't, I hate to say mainstream media, but if the newspapers have decided that it, it's that, that's all in the past, is Starmer going to be able to make this kind of plan to clean up politics stick when the news cycle has this mayfly memory and 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 just seems no longer interested? Well, I think part part of the issue is this word sleezed, right? Because I I don't really get what necessarily that entails like it it, i i know that it was common thing that was used in the like early 90s but that was when i was a child and so Uh, yeah okay like uh that was people would say that the john major (laughs) government was there was sleaze but that's because people were having affairs or what have you and i guess no like a, a large portion of the electorate is just like what is this and i don't know like sometimes are they just hesitant about using the words corruption or like i know cronyism gets used sometimes but i guess it's just like call call the thing call the thing what it is and not this sort of weird 30 year old word from british political history we do hear we hear the word sleaze a lot partly as you know it's it's kind of uh, you know received wisdom that the word corruption is unparliamentary language. Consequently, the speaker will stop you from saying it. So oh, you say really? sleaze instead. Ah. I'm not entirely sure if that's true because is it, sleaze is, is it more like important. How you can't call someone a liar, but you can say that they are being economical with the truth, or they are perhaps not recalling things uh, with the exactactitude for which this house oh, expects. Etc. Et et we polite? Uh, yeah, it's yeah. Those rules it? are really dumb. <laughs> yeah, they're really great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have I've used the word sleaze lately, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you when I used it. Um, my son has got very into James Bond movies. I'm afraid he's only eight, but he's very into them. And he's been unfortunately going on Google and typing in James Bond girl bikini. <laughs> that was when I most recently used the word sleaze because it sort of manifests a certain yeah. Oh yeah, this is this is the way this is the way to uh, win. Associate a word that you've only ever associated with James fucking Bond uh, with the prime minister. <laughs> That's, that's I, now, I now have an image of Johnson emerging from the waves in a bikini and destroyed uh, <laughs> my day. Um, yeah, but I also think that um, corruption is a legalistic and a boring word, and it's not emotive, is it? Whereas sleaze is more sleaze is sleazier. But there was an interesting thing, Raphael Burr, an interesting thing in the Guardian, saying that it's actually kind of Labour retro. It's Labour trying to do its successful past. It's mm. we're going to we're going to do the first album again in order, all the tracks in order. When you know when when Sleaze really cut through when it was by today's standards just small beer, 
random shagging and, you know, a little bit of brown envelopes, not on the galactic scale that we're seeing right now. So part wrapped into it is the kind of pathology of labor, its inability to kind of deal with or escape its past. That's Raphael Baer's theory. But uh, here, number 10 has refused to deny that Johnson was touting around for a donor to pay for a nanny for Wilfred. And the unnamed donor was saying, I don't mind paying for leaflets, but I resent being asked to pay to literally wipe the prime minister's baby's bottom. And this is pretty kind of low-key cheap jack stuff, as Alex was saying. The prime minister comes cheap. <laughs> yes, but also, like, I, I remember watching uh, Newsnight a few nights ago and Charles Walker was on this saying that, oh, who cares? Like, it's, uh, the, the, the public don't care that someone's paying for wallpaper or he didn't mention the uh, donor for the nanny thing. But th- the effect was, like, all of this stuff is private business. So who cares in the same way that it wouldn't matter if, you know, you're parents were like we're gonna buy a pram for the new baby congratulations <laughs> um right but it's like the point is fundamentally surely just surely you're beholden to someone who gives you a shit ton of money like if one of you mm. were to give me fifty eight thousand pounds i would do you a favor and i want to say that openly now mm. on the off chance <laughs> that one of you will give me fifty eight thousand pounds well don't don't bank on it but i'll see what i can do um <laughs> Ross, just a, just a couple of things to wrap this up. Do you think Starmer can do anything about the inevitable? We know exactly what's going to be said on Friday. It's going to be he must step down, Sir Haircut Keith. The, the kind of idea that if, Labour, if 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 the previous version of Labour can't win, then no version of Labour should be allowed any success or any time to put anything right. It's, it's just something he's got to weather. If you're asking yourself if Labour can't win now, then when can it? Then you're asking yourself the wrong question. Because this is exactly the time when Labour can't win, because the pandemic offers ideal conditions for an incumbent party and the vaccine rollout compounds that. It has only been a year of Keir Starmer, even if it feels like the longest year of our lives. It's only been a year. You can't turn around a party when you are so limited in what you can do politically in that year. And if they kick out Starmer after a year, which I don't think they will, but if they do, that would just be the most extraordinary act of stupidity and and just willful blindness to what has happened to this country over the past year. Can I disagree slightly? I think Brexit and the pandemic have been a catalyst, a catalyst that's exposed much more existential uh, questions for Labour. It's it's basically a frame of the coalition that they held together for decades. The Conservatives have now shifted to the right on social and cultural issues while abandoning, albeit temporarily, fiscal conservatism and pumping loads of money into people's pockets, admittedly much more to their mates' pockets, but what do I care as long as I also get 20 quid? These two shifts make them even more attractive to a lot of traditional red wall, former red wall Labour voters. And with the SNP having captured Scotland, I just can't see the options for Labour. They are extremely limited the only thing that might put the Conservatives on the back foot is for Labour to start going after more traditional Tory strongholds in the South who will hate the fact that Tories have become less socially liberal and more fiscally loose. And they are the ones now holding a disparate broad church together, Conservatives. And Labour, instead of trying to roll the clock back to 97 or 47, must formulate a strategy going forward 
that exposes the conservative internal tensions. The trap for Labour, I think, is to focus on constituencies which have been traditionally Labour rather than look at the actual numbers. They have to look at the numbers to waste time somewhere like Bassett Law just because they still see it as their seat, but where they are 14,000 votes behind and 20% behind, while places like Reading, Milton Keynes and Wickham might actually be more realistic targets for Labour today than some of those former Red Wall seats. It might be smarter tactically as well in terms of giving their opponent something to think about. You know, Labour have been playing defence on those northern seats for a decade now. And it's time they stopped that. They accepted that demographics mean that those seats are no longer uh, necessarily Labour and looked at where their natural voting constituencies are. The absolute horror in India continues to be heartbreaking, with people dying in the streets, funeral pyres, oxygen shortages. Arundhati Roy called it a crime against humanity. India's total COVID cases have exceeded 20 million. The country reported almost 360,000 new cases uh, in the 24 hours at the start of this week, a recorded total of over 222,000 deaths. Many health experts believe that India's true death toll is five to ten times higher than official data and calls for a national lockdown have grown significantly over the past few days. Only 1.6% of India is fully vaccinated and 10% of people have received their first dose. But India is the home of the Serum Institute and the world's largest vaccine factory. So why is its vaccine rollout being so slow? Uh, I I hate to start with you, but you did tweet that belonging to two countries whose heads of government seem pretty relaxed about their citizens' bodies piling up in their thousands feels fairly dreadful, to be honest. What are you hearing? Is is everything okay with with your family and your wider network? Uh, Well, no, (laughs) fundamentally. Um, it's uh, A lot of people are ill and we've uh, unfortunately lost one person uh, already and I worry that that won't be um, the last. Uh, But yes, it's certainly like particularly when things in this country do seem to be changing for the better and quite rapidly and what have you. But you hear about Johnson having allegedly said this thing about being Mm. cool with the bodies piling high in their thousands, you know, that going along with all of these demonstrations uh, against every restriction and what have you in central London. And then I am just sort of a WhatsApp away from the fact that there is this other country who I am uh, attached to and indeed a citizen of that the bodies are literally piling high in their thousands on the street. And it's just this, this indifference to human life really is what, what seems fundamentally to underscore a lot of attitudes, but particularly uh, the attitudes of these sort of populist wannabe authoritarian strongmen. Uh, And it's just, it's, it's, it's hell on earth right now. It it certainly sounds it. Whereabouts are your friends and family? What, What are they saying? Uh, so my family are all in Gujarat, uh, but then I've been also talking to sort of friends who are either first or second generation immigrants who've got family in Kerala, Delhi or Mumbai uh, and everything. And the the scale of the problem is just next level and mm. considerably like I remember, as as we all do, the sort of very visceral fear that accompanied vast swathes of life in this country over the last uh, year and a bit where we were worried about the total overwhelming of the health service and what if x y and z happen 
a lot of those worst fears were indeed uh, things that happened in this country, right? But mm-hmm. if you're operating from a baseline of like in India, the sort of the baseline is right. The health service is already immediately overwhelmed. That just doesn't exist now. Uh, and so where do you go from there? It kind of almost sort of defeats common and defeats understanding because as you say, we were, we were frightened to see the NHS being overwhelmed. What looks like it's happening and what looks like what appears to be happening in India is that society itself is being overwhelmed. The fact that it was only three months ago that the health minister was effectively declaring victory, and now drugs aren't even available on the on the black market. What are your friends and family saying about about Modi? Because we te- we tend to see it as Trump being replayed in India. The you know just uh, volume, certitude, strong man bullshit to yeah. compensate for everything else. What are your friends and family saying about this? Well, it's so my family uh, are you know and particularly as sort of like. Hindus uh, are, are generally speaking um, more on the, a lot of them are more on the side of um, Mr. Modi, particularly the older ones. Yeah. Um, and it's less that it's less that people are walking back the support, but more that the support is less. This man is essentially a magician who can solve any problem and what have you. And that, that seems to be, you know, that, that little bit quieter because you can't, you can't deny the stuff that's, that you're seeing on the street, you know, um, that that's right there. And the fact that this crisis, in the same way that this sudden overwhelming crisis uh, that hits any country in this way is just a horrible way of showing up what are the cracks in this country because it's like it's like water seeping into rock you know it will find whatever your cracks are and then freeze in them expand them and the rock will break right and so in india just the levels of endemic corruption throughout society have been like oh this is the worst possible time for that sort of thing to happen and that's just a problem that runs through lots of bureaucracies and lots of society like a word at a stick of rock uh and mm. it's it's just causing overwhelming and in many ways avoidable humanitarian catastrophe yeah it's it's astonishing it's like as if as if the pandemic is a test for uh states around the world and that that you know states which are governed in an in an open manner without dependency on extreme and overt nationalism and which have low corruption indexes tended to do better what a surprise and to be honest a, a linking thing with this corruption as you mentioned briefly about the official data and the concerns about the nature of the official data or the veracity of it that you know you'll look on the first on the first pass of if you're just looking at the official numbers you're like oh right but contextually given the size of the population is it that bad or what have you and then you realize that because of the nature of uh, the the corruption and the pressure that's exerted on all levels of civil society here, you know, it's like um, that guy, our uh, friend of the pod, Brian Class, with his uh, podcast, uh, Power Corrupts, had an episode talking about rigging a presidential election and the president being like, oh, well, I don't want to win by too much. uh, So give me like 60% of the vote or something like that. And then every 
rung below were like, oh, right, well, we don't want to mess this up. So give him 62 just in case we like it doesn't go according to... And then by the end of it, he ends up with 95% or what have you. So the truth of the matter, because people are encouraged to, oh, let's not put that down as COVID, we'll put that down as sickness, or, you know, two hospitals have reported a thousand deaths, but our city's official death toll is 150 and everything, because, well, will the party become angry with me uh, or whatever? And it just... It rots everything. It harms everything, ultimately. And it's a beautiful country with beautiful people. And it's a great, great, great tragedy. Just before, before I move on to Roz, who uh, is the specialist on COVID from a, a, a medical strategy point of view, I just want to ask you out here, how personally culpable is, is Modi, do you think? I mean, we, you know, we all saw the big rallies that he would, wouldn't call off. I don't know. And I don't think one can ever know and really... A lot of the time it feels like playing these counterfactuals are just a surefire way to drive you mad. Um, Like in the same way that I didn't know what the difference would have been if Clinton rather than Trump had been in charge or if Rory Stewart had won the Tory Mm -hmm. leadership election rather than uh, Boris Johnson. But what does seem to be the case just over the course or, uh, or considering the span of various countries with your Trumps, your Bolsonaro's, your ju- just a certain kind of character of which Modi is one seems uniquely unsuited to dealing with an issue of this nature and consequently has done a lot worse. And particularly given that his his like big thing is the, you know, in the same way that Boris Johnson's almost defining thing is I'm going to announce a mental infrastructure project just because I like doing that and <laughs> it'll never happen, but fine. Uh, so in the same way, like more of these thing is, right, massive announcement and you've got like 20 minutes. Everyone do this, right? Uh, and it happened with demonetization. Surprise, surprise, lots of people got in trouble and quite a few people died. Uh, it happened with the initial lockdown, people dying on the side of the road as they try and walk back to villages hundreds of miles away and everything. And yeah, it's it's something in the characters of this style of leader that has really been shown up, I think. Roz, uh, the UK, the US, Germany, even Pakistan have been already exporting ventilators and oxygen tanks to India. Uh, but there seems to be a reluctance to export vaccines. Why is this? Is this because essentially India is a manufacturer of vaccines? Well, it's a bit more complicated than that, but it's also very mm. simple. I mean, we no longer need ventilators in the UK. We will probably need more vaccines than we have bought at the moment. And there is a terrible irony that the more COVID runs out of control in countries like India and in South America, uh, the more variants are likely to develop. That mean that we then need to tweak and adjust and have more vaccines in 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 uh, countries where people have already been vaccinated in order to keep up with those variants. So, you you know, you've already probably heard today that the government is thinking of giving over 50s and the clinically vulnerable a booster shot uh, in the autumn, which should hopefully prevent them against a another variant that might, you know, may or may not appear or if the Indian variant um, proves to be more resistant to vaccines, which we don't know yet. They're expecting to have to constantly play catch up and they're expecting to have to vaccinate people potentially on an annual basis because one of the other unknowns is how long immunity will last. Will these vaccines be like flu vaccinations where we need a new one each year or 
Will they last a lot longer? So there's a lot of uncertainty. When you think about the EU, the EU has been terribly burnt by the slowness, initial slowness of their vaccine rollout. It's now improving. They also increasingly want a choice in the EU. There is a big move towards, well, they started out with Pfizer and Moderna, the more effective vaccines that are not linked with a risk, albeit tiny, of blood clots. You've seen Sweden in uh, in the last few days donating a million of its AstraZeneca shots uh, to the global south. That's a nice gesture. It's great. It's uh, come ahead of anything that America has done. But it's also because the EU is just less keen on the AstraZeneca shot because it's less effective than Pfizer and Moderna. And you're also seeing that with Johnson & Johnson, which is the great one-shot vaccine, but also not quite as effective as the mRNA uh, vaccines that Pfizer and Moderna have developed. So we're in the fortunate position of being able to be picky about which vaccines we have in Europe. And there is therefore going to be a move now, I think, to uh, to send back in some cases, because a lot of these will be back, uh, originally made in, in India, the less effect- effective vaccines for the use of the Global South and to keep the more effective vaccines for the use of the EU. In a way, that makes sense because the Johnson Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccines are much easier to transport and um, they don't need to be kept so cold. And of course, Johnson Johnson is only one shot. So that makes them easier to distribute for countries that don't mm. have advanced supply chains. But it is it is going to be a kind of, you know, <laughs> we, are, we are so lucky to have the choice of which vaccines we have. Alex, last week, Matt Hancock said that Britain had no surplus vaccines to give to India, uh, but it quietly sent 700,000 doses of AstraZeneca to Australia earlier this Mm. month. uh, And it has been sending vaccines uh, to the EU. Is it really the case that we have no surplus vaccines? Uh, And and if so, you know, notwithstanding what the explanation Ross has just given us, why not India? Well, look, if, if I were being very charitable, the interpretation would be this, that purely in terms of population, a million doses to a country with 25 million people has much more impact. In a country like India with 1.4 billion, it doesn't touch the sides. There is some truth in in that, in that the solutions required for places like India or Brazil are different, I think. They are about freeing up patents, you know, waiving the patent rights, about helping them to scale up their manufacturing and distribution capacity, which would be useless for Australia that is already quite good at those things. But the general point, two general points, there's no doubt that vaccines have become currency, more than more valuable than actual currency, which is why we see this week Canada contributing loads of money to COVAX, which is the scheme that aims to uh, 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 vaccinate the global south, while drawing down on its own vaccine allocation from COVAX. Because what's scarce at the moment is not money, it's the actual vaccines, it's the actual doses. So everyone in the West, you know, the US, the UK, they soothe themselves by saying, well, look how much money we gave to COVAX. But what good is money when the supply of the actual vaccine is not there for the global south to compete in buying some. And in all that, there is, I think, a big elephant in the room. You know, behind every got to look after your own first comment is a deeply 
ingrained belief that the lives of white people in the West have a higher intrinsic value than the lives of brown people somewhere far away. And we're not going to deal with this thing until we articulate this basic fucking truth. That's why if a bus crashes in Guadeloupe, you get told immediately how many Germans and how many UK tourists and how many US tourists were on that bus. You know, that's why if there's a, if there's a, a tsunami in Thailand, you immediately get told how many Europeans died. And so I think that's a, that's a big issue. It's not going to go away quickly or easily, but we have to address it. Who's up for another of our wild ideas for the future? COVID and the furlough scheme put the idea of, an, of a universal basic income into the mainstream. But what about the idea of universal basic capital? Is it time we bridge the generational divide by giving young people a lump sum when they turn 18? How about £10,000? LSE professor Julian Legrand thinks it's worth exploring. Hello, I'm Professor Julian Legrand from the London School of Economics, and I have a wild idea. The idea is that the British government should provide a grant of £10,000 to every young adult on their 18th birthday. The grant will be financed from inheritance tax. Why should we do this? It is precisely 18-year-olds, or indeed youth in general, who are going to be hit most hard economically and socially by the pandemic. The idea then is to actually provide them with a grant of capital, what we might call universal basic capital, to give them a kind of springboard to begin their adult lives. On the whole, if people have a relatively small amount of capital, not even £10,000, but say three or £4,000 at the beginning of their adult lives, they do better throughout their lives. If they uh, have this small amount of capital, say at the age of 18 or the age of 20, they have better levels of employment, they have higher incomes. All of this, despite the fact that we control for other factors, such as education, income, even personality type, you take all those things out and you still get this kind of what they call an asset effect. Giving people a small amount of capital at the beginning of their lives is a very effective springboard for improving the whole of their life course. Well, a number of problems. The first, of course, is that it costs. It'll cost about £6 billion first year, and that's, that's quite a lot. But actually, that does happen to be roughly the same amount as inheritance tax raises. So it actually fits quite neatly there. And compared with the other sums of money that we are throwing at the economy after the pandemic, it's relatively small. A second problem, and perhaps a rather bigger problem, is what I call this sort of Daily Mail problem, which is what happens when people blow it. Of course, there will be some people who blow it on drugs, wine, whatever you care to name. If you're really worried about the wasteful spending, the, the danger that the whole thing will be frittered away, you could confine it to certain uses. You could confine it, for example, to start-up costs of a small business, paying off a student loan, down payment on a dwelling, on a house or a flat of some kind, possibly even the first the first steps towards a pension. I would accept that as part of the scheme if people felt it was necessary. I must say I don't feel very sympathetic to that. I think part of the idea of giving people this money is actually to teach financial responsibility. And I think we should allow people to do as they wish. 
scheme is certainly politically acceptable. It's not very costly, as I've indicated. I think that there is a greater awareness at the moment of the plight of the 18 to 24-year-olds as a result of the pandemic. And I think in some ways the pandemic has made it more likely to occur than not. And I think it's an idea that appeals to people. There's an American playwright, Thornton Wilder. He said, money is like manure. No use unless it is more equally spread. That's what a UBC does. A UBC essentially takes the wealth of one generation and spreads it around to fertilise the growth of the next. Uh, And that is why I think the British government should adopt the universal basic capital scheme as soon as it's politically and financially practical. Ross, this one really piqued your interest. Uh, How does UBC differ from UBI? Well, universal basic income is a guaranteed income uh, for the rest of your life so that basically you no longer have to worry about where the money is coming from. Universal basic capital uh, is a lump sum, as Julian explained, which you get given at a certain point in your life, preferably quite early on, and which you can then spend on what whatever you want mm. um and this is looking at the idea of an asset effect that you can kind of at the start of life effectively kind of get give yourself a leg up possibly put some element of uh, you know make a contribution towards a deposit on a house or more likely give yourself some seed capital for a business and the idea that you know th- that through that method you can tackle inequality and improve people's outcomes do you do you think it's likely to work I think it could certainly work. The difficulty is persuading people it could work. There is a great resistance in this country to what people turn, you know, free free money, despite the fact that furlough effectively was free money from the government. We have in the last 20 years or so in particular moved a, away from non-means tested benefits like child benefit, for example, which is Uh, now means tested, didn't used to be, used to be available to everyone. And there is a great resistance among the public to handing out money. Now that is increased when it comes to handing out money to young people, because they are seen as feckless and not knowing how to spend it. I think that Julian's proposal is very interesting. I think it might actually work better at the age of 21 rather than 18 because then you've got... What about 40? How about 50? (laughs) How about me? No, no, seriously. Seriously, because you've then then picked up university debts. You know, you've got got those to to pay off. And although that wouldn't be a very exciting use of it, you're also in a better position to actually start a business if you're going to do that. I think it would be best a bit later. But of course, he wants to link it to having the right to vote. I think we need to kind of we need to turn our thinking about this on it on its head. If you think of how the Chancellor has spent money during this pandemic, including notably the stamp duty holiday, which has been a horrific policy that has driven the value of houses up that has actually made it more difficult for first time buyers to afford a property because the price of houses has gone up again. And it has done nothing for those at the very bottom who are not in a position to buy a house at all. In terms of what we think of people's potentially spending 10, 10 grand in a bad way, we need to rethink about what bad means. Why is it worse that a 21 year old, for example, should spend 10 grand enjoying themselves potentially possibly on illegal drugs partly <laughs> than that a 65 year old should spend it on a cruise the cruise is far more environmentally yes. damaging <laughs> and and 
we need to stop being so judgmental about young people and assuming that they don't know how to spend money and that they shouldn't have it and that only old people deserve state handouts, which is basically the default position. Old people and homeowners have deserved state handouts during this pandemic and young people, unless they were put on furlough, have not. And it really is a poisonous point of view, which needs to be overcome in society, I think. What I thought was fascinating about Julian's thing is the idea that the, the £6 billion funding, which he thinks it would cost, is roughly equivalent to the government's income from inheritance tax. So effectively, what you're talking about is taking people's inheritances or a part of their inheritance and saying, why should this just go to your kids? Why shouldn't it go to somebody else's kids to give them a start? Which I think is kind of fascinating. The idea, the idea that we can pass on generational wealth just within our own family has big question marks over it. It distorts society. It produces and entrenches inequality. We're not asking to take your net inheritance away from you. Just take the bit that you paid to the government and give it to somebody else's kids that they could have the start in life that maybe your own kids could have. I find that really fascinating and possibly even a message that could take root. Do you think? Yeah, exactly. And the fact is that inheritances are getting bigger and bigger and are predicted to get even bigger. So the gap between people who inherit and people who don't is going to get vaster and vaster in the coming years. And the fact that we are cool with unearned income when its house price rises, but we're not cool with unearned income when it could be spent on something more worthwhile is is just this remarkable cognitive dissonance. Uh, here, I'm going to ask you, as, as somebody who is so ancient, he got a full student grant and then immediately spent it on a CD player. <laughs> what would what would 18-year-old uh, here have done with £10,000, do you uh, think? I'm, I'm not sure. It certainly would have uh, helped during university or I, I wanted to do uh, master's uh, and I didn't have any money to do one, so... I didn't. Uh, so that might have helped. Uh, I I do wonder about, like, like Ros was saying with um, the stamp duty holiday, my only worry would be like with the stamp duty holiday, it's like, all right, you were going to spend £300,000 uh, on this flat and would have spent X stamp duty. And what a surprise, it now costs £300,000 plus X. Yes. Uh, to get this thing. So I wonder if the price of a lot of things would just immediately go up by 10 grand uh, because people are being nefarious. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know about this one. What I would love, I think that a real turning point was the 2007, 2008 financial crisis, which created, it, it's it's a real like societal fulcrum after which it seems that things have only really gone in one direction for young people. And so I would maybe backdate it to anyone who turned 18 after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, which uh, coincidentally by three months includes Ahir Tenkesha. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Okay. <laughs> Funny that. Hmm. Yeah, that's like me saying it should be given to people in the, when they're fifty. What? What about the objection? I mean, we, we sort of talk about the objection that in many cases you'd be giving ten grand to people who are already well in credit at that at the bank of mum and dad. What about that? That sort of reverse objection that you know why are you taking this this blanket amount of money? It's a similar one to the objection to UBI. Why are you taking a lump sum of money and giving it to? Kate Middleton's mates, just as you are giving it to uh, some kid on a state with without a penny. Yeah, I mean, I dig that, but in, in the same way, again, like as Ros was saying about the there, there is something about the universality of things which is appealing, even if it does end up going to like it's a good thing that no matter how much money you have, you can get 
treatment in an NHS hospital because that's just something that we've decided is important for everyone uh, to be able to do. Uh, and so, yeah, or maybe, yeah, maybe you just do it for people who went to state school or something. That'd probably be quite an easy way of... Um... And you don't want to give it to them. <laughs> Alex, before we move on, is that splurge problem that uh, Julian calls the Daily Mail problem? You know, your 10 grand gets spent on booze and drugs and festivals and being photographed on the front of the Telegraph enjoying yourself. Is that too much to overcome? Do you Heaven think? forfend! <laughs> Look, the, the Daily Mail doesn't interrogate policies. <laughs> what a weird notion. It's partisan. It likes particular people. Um, and if it... No, but if it decides that uh, you as a leader will be good for it and good for its uh, its owner... You know, if Johnson announced this precise scheme tomorrow, there's a there's a, a very good chance that the male will find it brilliant. What would your what would eighteen year old Alex have spent his ten grand on? Drugs and hookers, naturally. So we've come to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for our panel's escape routes from politics. What are the TV, films, books, or John Lewis goods that are taking their minds away? <laughs> from the political horror show before us. Ahir, what's your escape route? So I'm actually going to have to find a new one today because last night I finished uh, season two of For All Mankind, uh, ah. the very, very excellent, uh, weirdly Apple TV um, series uh, about a sort of alternate history if the Soviet Union had been the first to land a man on the moon and the space race never ended. Uh, and it's two very, very brilliant uh, series of television, uh, which I have been enjoying greatly. So I need a new escape route, but I would encourage everyone to uh, look into that one. I really like that series. And it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of women in space, isn't it? Society mm. sort of bends in a different direction. And it's uh, first woman on the moon and all that kind of thing. Ros Taylor, what's your escape route from politics this week? My escape route has been a new book called Empire of Pain, which is by Patrick Redden Keefe. And that's about the Sackler family who were behind OxyContin, of course, which had played a big role in the US opioid epidemic. And I'm talking to him next week for The Bunker. So look out for that. And it is a fascinating book telling me things that I had no idea about in the way pharmaceutics, uh, pharmaceutical products have been have been marketed in the US for so long in such a disingenuous and frankly corrupt way. It really is a pharmaceutical scandal on such an enormous scale that it could even end up putting something like thalidomide into the shade because there are literally tens of millions of people involved in this, aren't there? Yeah, that's right. It's And it, it, the strange thing is, not the strange thing, but you can see the pattern going back to the 40s, to the 50s, when these marketing techniques and these assumptions started being made and the targeting in particular of doctors because in America of course they prescribe drugs and they have the power to say I want a particular drug I don't want a generic one and the way those were targeted and the way the advertising was done which all contributed together with very very lax policy to this this massive massive problem that has killed so many Americans and I think actually has not in a good way reduce the gap in life expectancy between black Americans and white Americans because of the impact it has had. Alex, how about you? 
Um, well, I spent the week before planting everything in my roof garden. Uh, so I spent uh, this week trying to protect everything from <laughs> from the February weather we've been <laughs> we've been having. So I don't know if that counts as an escape route, but that's what I've been doing with every minute of my day: Drag, well, dragging planters in the house, taking them out of the house, covering them in plastic, covering them in fucking straw. Well, it certainly takes your mind off uh, the local elections for uh, police and crime commissioners. So I, I'm going to say it counts. <laughs> uh, mine is sort of, it's partly about politics, but I've been entranced and enjoying the responses to that video of Donald Trump appearing on stage at some wedding venue. <laughs> I don't know if you saw this at the weekend. He just pops up on stage in a kind of sort of mid-range hotel, moaning about the election. And it's, it's classic Trump. They've had a lot of votes in New Hampshire, and everybody knows, and it's a lie in the New York Times, and it's all going to come out, and we're looking at it very strongly. You know, the usual word, word salad. <laughs> but he's on this cheesy little stage. In the background, there's a guitarist with the cowboy hat looking at him. <laughs> And a drum kit behind him. And the, the responses to this on Twitter are just gold. And I have to share two, some with two you. Two years' time, she's going to be playing small-scale bar mitzvahs, isn't he? Exactly. Yeah, tonight, pu- puppet show on Donald Trump. <laughs> but um, the, the responses on Twitter are just fantastic. This is like when Jake LaMotta did comedy at his own club. You keep expecting him to start making a crown out of balloons. The drummer could have done a couple of rim shots and become a legend. <laughs> It's like Napoleon at St. Helena, only with all-you-can-eat shrimp. <laughs> Adam Sandler's sequel to The Wedding Singer is just awful. <laughs> and my, my personal favourite, presenting the Miss Havisham of Florida. So there you go. Uh, I, also, <laughs> Andrew, the thing, that, uh, the thing that's funniest to me is that you say he's at some mid-range hotel, but it is Mar-a-Lago. It is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, some mid-range hotel, Mar-a-Lago. Mar-a-Lado, as they were calling it. And that is the end of this week's bunker. Thank you, Alex Andreo. You've made... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, Sorry, let me do that again. Thank you. Thank you, Russ Taylor. Thank you. And thank you, Ahisha. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Punker Daily and the full-length show this time next week, ideally on time this time. So follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. And if you enjoyed the show, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to see a dazzling array of benefits that even the sponsor of a Prime Minister's nanny could not expect. (laughs) Backers get an honorary salute on the show, and here are some now. Best wishes from me to Susan Carter, Alex Holden, and Eileen Duncan. Hello, and many thanks from me to Sampo Cosoneon, Evelyn Peel, and Lucy Tatner. It's a big thanks from me to Suzanne Hart, Linda Killin, and Kirsten Swenson. And finally, thanks from me to Simon Patterson, Robert Jesser, and yes, we've got the elite one percenters right behind us, Bruce Wayne. <laughs> See you all next time. <laughs> the Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Ahir Shah, Alex Andreev, and Ross Taylor. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jan Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>